0: Nice. Hi, hey. Nice. That's where we know each other. From. Back in California. Your so. mom gave me my first kia. Yeah. What do you say about that? <laughs> she gave me also. I mean, that's not something we have <laughs> Do you still live there? I don't live there. I live here in a modest school. Oh. Um, I no, teach so on it. Rabbi Brazilian yeshiva in the modest school. Um, cool. So that's what happened a, a few years ago when I uh, moved to Israel. About five years ago. Um, what else about myself? I have two really cute daughters. They're super cute. Oh my By objective standards, they're cute. I, mean, I also really like them more than kids that are even cuter than the yeah. objective standards. But to me, you know, so that's, that's, that's me. I also teach for, for Himene, international programs. That's HIP, right. Some of us have, have met at HIP, I think. Um, as well as for Asia Tugger. Uh, what else about myself? There's not really much more that you need to know. So quit being nosy. Uh, but really, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. You know, there are different uh, experiences as a, as a, as a public speaker. Sometimes you come into a room full of people that are uh, are all texting, you know. And then sometimes you come into a room and it's inspirational just to be in the room. This is absolutely what's happening to me now. Um, It's an honor to, to be here with all of you. And, uh, and thank you for, for giving me your attention. I want to tell you about an interesting thing. And that is a Yiddish expression which, well, you may have heard this, if you had grandparents who spoke Yiddish, they would just, you know, this is something that people would say at any time. Sort of like Israelis who say Chaval al um, Chaval al means it's a shame that so much time is wasted. Um, they'll use it for anything. If they see something, like, in the supermarket, Chaval <laughs> They'll just use it for anything. What my grandmother sometimes used to do, and a lot of old uh, people who spoke Yiddish, they would say, Shikr is a guy. Shikr is a Gentile. In other words, it means like the idolater is drunk. He sits around. What does he do with his life? You know, the Jew, listen, how many of us really do this, but the Jew sits and studies ancient texts at candlelight at night, right? That's like the picture of the Jew, the picture of your great-grandfather on the wall at your head, right? That's that's the Jew. And like the idolater is, is a drunkard. He sits and drinks his life. Okay, you know, that's the, uh, shikker is a good. And yet Purim, the mitzvah is, that a man is supposed to get so drunk on Purim. That he cannot differentiate between how bad Haman is and how blessed Mordechai is. Mordechai is the hero. He's a righteous man. He's a man who suffered as well. He was, after all, we were taught last stages. he was married to Esther. Um, it's a quite tragic story. She was taken from her loving husband, who was also her father in a way. He also raised her. He was every close relationship that you have in your life. I know that every one of us. Uh, has given up on some level, on some relationship that we have, in order to make a big change in your life. No one gave up as much as Esther. Um, that was her father. That was her. Do you understand? Um, Mordecai was, was, was the fellow who raised someone like Esther. So there's Mordecai. In other words, let's talk about someone you know who was good in your life. Let's assume that your grandmother was a good person. I want you to get so drunk that you cannot distinguish between your grandmother and Hitler. Is that ever going to happen? <laughs> How long is that? Right? <laughs> That's what it is. Right. In other words, uh, it's a bizarre thing to, to expect of anyone. But, but the bigger question is what kind of a way is that for us to celebrate? You're going to see people in the streets. I mean, I hope they don't run the trains on board because people will be running directly in front of the train mm-hmm. paying no attention. Um, yeah. It's going to be completely crazy. A lot of people are going to take it over, over, the, over the edge. Um, what's the positive side of it? Why are we doing this? Why is everyone getting drunk, sitting around and putting lampshades on their head and singing Shoshana Siakhov. Great rabbis, old men. I, uh, despite whatever I did in my childhood, i have never ever been drunk except for on port. But there was nobody. In other words, when I was in the tenth grade, like my father, didn't tell me not to drink on port, and he told me to eat a few cheese sandwiches before so I wouldn't kill my stomach. In other words, I was raised in a religious home in a religious community and taught how to drink on port. And that's the story. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna take a step away from that question, but at the end we have to get an answer to that. Um, and we also want to find out why people are dressed up as a variety of of animals. Um, I'm gonna be a clown, so and we're gonna you know we're gonna discuss why people dress up as clowns, mice, mailboxes, and a variety of other bizarre things. First, I want I want to tell you about. When the Torah was given, it says, God mm-hmm. offered the Jewish people the Torah. And he said, Not seven ishma. Yes. You betcha. So he says, Go ahead. Um, That's very good. And then he picked up a mountain and held it over their head. And he said, If you accept the Torah, good. Because if you don't, your burial place, Sham Tehe Kvuatchen. Over there, Sham Tehe will be Kvuatchen, your graves. Which is bizarre. I mean, you'd think he would say, Here is where your grave will be, no, not there. Sorry. There is where your grave will be. So the Jewish people accepted the Torah and Hashem didn't have to drop a mountain on all the Jewish people. So one thing we have to understand is what's the image of the mountain? Even if we're to take this and other was Maharal and others say it's not a literal statement but it's a poetic statement. In other words, God did threaten their no lives. He made it clear to them that there was no choice but to accept the Torah. Um, they realized everything that hung in the balance and yet he didn't physically uproot a mountain and hold it over their hands. It's, it's imagery. As the Maran says. Even if you were to take it literally, you would still have to be mature enough to figure out why did God do that? What does a mountain represent? So that's the first thing we have to figure out. In other words, I'm not here to say whether it's literal or not, there are differences of opinion, but surely what a mountain represents in Torah will, will, will come into play in this story. Secondly, why was there a need to threaten them? If they had already said willingly, not Sevinishma, they belted it out. So Tos was... Uh, is troubled by that question and I'll tell you what he says after this. The Gemara then says despite the fact that there was always a huge claim against the Torah because it was accepted under duress there was always a claim any person who didn't keep the Torah said, I didn't ask this I didn't ask to be born. Nevertheless in the days of Achashverosh the Jewish people re-accepted the Torah because it says in the Megillah they affirmed and accepted. So it's Kiamu, they, they fulfilled and affirmed what they had already accepted back at Sinai. So until Purim, it wasn't clear the depth of the acceptance at Sinai. In other words, until then, they still needed to be forced on some level. So Tosa says why? Tosa said, on oh, to the commentary right on the page, he says, because the Jewish people, after they accepted the Torah, got really scared and wanted to back out. There was thunder and lightning, and they were like, wait a minute, yes, I'll do it. And then you say, your friend says, okay, fine, you, you'll, you'll do me, can, I do, can you do me a favor? Yes. And they start to say what it is, and you, and you can't believe you got yourself into this. You're driving to the airport at three o'clock in the morning, and you you don't want to do any of it. Um, and that's what happened to the Jewish people. And at poor we somehow rectified that, which is also you know something that needs to be to be explained. Wait, can I ask? A sure. Wasn't that a thousand years later almost? It was a long time later. So you're saying that we really didn't have Bechira up until that point? Well, it wouldn't be that we didn't have free will, but it would mean that our original acceptance of the Torah wasn't quite perfect. There was something that needed to happen in to perfect it. Um, the Chida, who was a great Sephardic giant in the 1700s, with Chaim Yosef David Azuley. Chida. Um, absolutely brilliant. 80 books, and like, he's considered still to this day one of the most uh, exciting things in any area. In Halacha, in Kabbalah, in, in everything, he was really, really knowledgeable and brilliant. The Chida writes that Rabbah, which means giant, big. There was a big claim against the Torah. We often find that it's used in the opposite way. When something is minuscule, we use the word giant. So he says Kiddush on Friday night. The Torah says, honor the Sabbath to make it holy. Friday night is a long Kiddush. It's two blessings. We first make the Borei Hagefen, and then we make the Mekadesha Shabbas. That's Friday night Kiddush. Shabbos day is Rabbinic. All you got to do is say Borei Hagefen. All those other words before it, they're psukim, they're nice. You don't have to say them. You can say, uh, just remember that it's Shabbos, and say Borei Hagefen. I mean, with Baruch atah Hashem, right? You said a blessing, and that's it. Um, and the Shabbos Day Kiddush is not to remember that God made the world, it's just because it's a special occasion. We have one special occasion to honor the Shabbos. So what's the story? Why is it called Kiddusha Rabba? Did you ever hear this? It says, you look in the Siddur, it says Shabbos morning Kiddush is called the Giant Kiddush, the Big Kiddush. Um, so the reason is, it does says that the reason for this is called Lashon in, Sagi Nahor. In Hebrew, they call a blind person one with a lot of light. A person who has a lot of vision, and, and he's a blind person. And there's a lot of depth to that. In other words, sometimes a person who sees so much is blinded by that. You. When you, like, you stare at the sun, you're blinded. Some darkness in our lives is not darkness at all. It is an incredible light that has blinded us. So it's a message that the Velagon talks about with So Kidusha Ravu, this massive Kiddush is really a way of saying a minor one, which would mean, and we know that this claim against the Torah was minor. It was almost non-existent. But there was something there. In other words, anything that's happening now in Jewish history is perfecting something that our forefathers didn't quite get to. Perhaps we're standing on their shoulders, right, and learning from all their mistakes and appreciating all of their accomplishments. But at the end of the day, if there's something for you to do, it means it hasn't been done yet. You're not here to run around in circles. You're here to make the world a better place. And every time you do a mitzvah or you smile at one extra person or you do one productive thing, you're doing something that wasn't yet done of a whole bunch of things that need to be done before the world is, is, is a perfect place. Um, and so at the time of Purim, we were doing something that had not yet been done. Welcome. So that's the first step. The whole thing is missing. And mean, what's the connection between Sinai and Purim. Why does he say, over there will be your grave? Here's, here's another really, really interesting thing. In a number of places in the, in, in the Prophets, um, the Abos, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are called Harim. El-Hahorim esa Enai El-Hahorim. Horim are parents, and Harim are mountains. The place that you come from is the mountains. So he says like this. How do you possibly force somebody to take the Torah? I mean, why would God force the Jewish people? And not everyone else in the world. And how does that work, anyway? Let's explore it a little bit. Hamam, the the Amalekites, were very different than the Chanukah story. Some of you are around, learning in depth between Hanukkah and Purim. There's a huge difference. And one of those differences is this. On Purim, it's a huge mitzvah. The mitzvahs of Purim are eating and drinking. They are physical mitzvahs. Um, The mitzvahs on Hanukkah have nothing to do with eating and drinking. There is no mitzvah to eat and drink. If you do, that's cool. That's what it says. If you do, and you sing songs to Hashem, and you talk about Torah, then your meal becomes a mitzvah. On Purim, it does not say that for it to be a mitzvah, you have to sing songs and talk about Torah. You don't. You just have to eat food. So the question is why? So one of the commentaries in the Shulchan Aruch says, because at the Hanukkah time, they were attacking our ideology. And so we celebrate ideologically. The poor in time, they were trying to kill our bodies. They wanted to smash us and break us and, and kill us and kill our little babies and take our money and then cross our names out and write their name on it. That's what they wanted. They wanted to wipe the world out from us. So there's a question. you know. The question that's asked on this is, by a by, by number of commentators, I don't understand. And we know the Talmud says it's much more serious to get someone to do a sin to turn somebody into an unproductive person than it is to kill them. It's much worse to turn somebody into a sinner than it is to kill them. To make someone live an unproductive life, a destructive life, to turn somebody, we all understand if it was an extreme sin, you know, something really bad. You, turn, you, you train someone to be an axe murderer. It, it would be better off you've done a worse thing for the world than for that person than had you simply killed the person, which is, of course, the most devastating crime you can commit. Yes. Yeah. Is that for the same reasoning behind behind a wayward son? In, in a way. Yes, yes. So there it's an interesting thing. It's, it's, a, it's a case that the Torah says will never happen. The wayward son is a case the Torah says will never ever happen. And it says it's a kid who's so bad that the Torah says if he does these number of things, and funny things, then he will guaranteed go out and rob people and kill them and violate the Shabbos and do a bunch of things um, that all carry the death penalty, so better to kill than that. Um, but, in other words, the fact that it will never, ever happen tells you that there's no such thing as a person who cannot be helped and cannot be changed and cannot be prevented from doing that. <laughs> That's what it tells you. When our sages say, but this will never, ever happen, it says it's purely theoretical because every person that was ever created has the ability to do something positive. They have the ability to change themselves for the better. So, I mean... But, but there is a, a real connection to that. So what happens here is that they say, listen, it's better to kill somebody, you know, it's not as serious when someone tries to kill you than when somebody tries to turn you into a, a sinner. So who is worse? I mean, the people of the times of Chavica, the Greeks, or Rahman, or, or certainly the Greeks. So why would you not have to have a special party for that? And, and that should just lead us to the simple question. If they were ideologically our enemies, the Amalekites, the word Amalek, which means Am. Malak, the, the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch, Balatanya, writes that Amalek, and, and many others, say that Amalek is, is Am-Malak, in the Torah, when you slaughter an animal, it's called shechita. When you slaughter a bird in the Temple, it was called Melika, the Kohen. I don't know if you've ever seen these guys, there's some in the Old City, with a really long, sharpened thumbnail. Like, like, after here. Um, they use, the Torah describes using your, your, your thumb, and to, to, to quickly and painlessly take off the head of the bird, exactly like Shrita. Um, <laughs> really interesting thing. Severing the head from the body is called Malika. Amalek is a nation of Malika. They're a nation of severing the head from the body. Amalek was Yodea esboro um Miskaven Limrodbo. They were ones who knew their creator. They knew what was right and nevertheless fought against it. So they knew what was going on. They knew we're going to jump into a bathtub that's boiling hot. We're going to get scolded, but the next people, will, I've already cooled it off for that. We're going to push the world in our direction. Hitler is very clear. The Jewish people represent conscience. The G- he writes this very clearly in his mind copy. He's very clear about what's right and what's wrong. And he says, I don't care about right and wrong. The law of the jungle is right. I pay no attention to what is objectively right and wrong. That's all invented. Amolek was a stage even before that. He's a descendant. Amolek is the one who says, I know what's right and wrong. I remember my grandfather's brother Uncle Yaakov, like, or my, rather, my, my Uncle Yaakov, he is, uh, he is uh, it's not his grandfather, he's his father. His grandfather was Yitzhak. He remembers sitting on his grandfather's knee and his uncle playing with him. I mean, he remembers these people in his life. He says, I don't care. If you would have met Isaac once in your life, it would be a better experience than the five-minute you know, sign-up sheet that you can get time with every other I'm just saying. In other words, (laughs) if there's a rabbi you can get five minutes with and it blows your mind people wait three weeks for that, Yitzhak Avidu would have totally taken the cake. For sure. What what do you say? I mean, he was Isaac. And and then there's Uncle Yaakov who shows up, you try to kill him every few years, you see him at any of those murderous reunions. So, what's the story? I mean, how do you become that way? The answer is that uh, you and I have a very powerful intellect. In fact, you'll notice, when you want to do something wrong, you know, we all have what's called a Yetzirah, or we all have a part of us that convinces us to be destructive, tells us to do things we shouldn't do. It's like a voice, you know, you're walking like near a roof, and it's like, jump, jump, see what will happen. And so most people don't have it at such an extreme a level, but they do, you know, have a voice that tells them, despite their five years of sobriety, drink, drink something, drink something, come on. It's, It's a funny thing to have. That voice is not physical. It's super intellectual. When you know, you know, I shouldn't do this, you come up with 600 things in your head that are intellectual to convince you to do it. You say, listen, you know, I heard once in a class that hell is only 12 months long. Anyway, besides, and you remember everything. You can't remember five minutes ago you heard a share. We can't even remember what the guy said. But this, we remember every word of the class that said, and by the way, all the cool kids anyway are going to be, I want to hang out and listen to harp music. I mean, come on. So you go on with brilliant rationalizations that come up in your head to convince you to do wrong things. Isn't that amazing? What you're battling with is not your physical animal side in its rawest form, just saying yeah, eat. And the other side is saying no, we'll get the knife and fork first, you know, don't just use the heel of your hand to, you know, shovel in more, because that is helpful. I mean, I have found that, um, hold on. But I, I will say that, I will say that, that, that when we recognize that incredible intellect, you'll notice in the world, The people, for example, in your life, in my life, in everyone I've ever met, who are the most challenged people um, by our religious view. The people that give us the hardest time for thinking that maybe the world was created and there's objective right and wrong. Those people are sometimes the smartest. A natural human being who hasn't developed his intellect, doesn't either have the tools to develop his yetzahara in its brilliant form. So the Gemara says in Sukkah, at the end of tractate Sukkah, kol ha-godl whoever is greater than his friend, yipsro godl his passion, his yetzah is bigger than his friend. You see, the simple person, when you go to the United States of America, I once, you know, in my in my young years, I went for a, a drive with, with four friends across the United States. And we went through the South, And in some of the places we went, in some of the small towns, we met really simple people. Um, They were religious, and they believed in family, and they believed in honor and integrity, and they couldn't spell much more. You know, their mailbox says M-A-L-E on it, you know? Um, Really, like, you met simple people. You often find things with simple people that are much more real than you do with super intellectuals that you may find, you know, in my... uh, I went to high school in Queens, you know? going to the city, you go walk through Greenwich Village. And some of the people you meet there, there's no way to find those just simple, basic things. These are brilliant people. The answer is, the more brilliant you become, the more tools you'll be feeding as well to your and to that part of you, to create all these brilliant things in your head. The head is valuable when it penetrates the heart. The head is valuable when it remains connected to the heart. When despite how super intellectual you are and how many books you've read about exactly why God does bad things to good people and why people, God forbid, lose their children and how God runs the whole world, the great spiritual person is the one who does all of that by heart and has written a couple books on it. And when you come to him and you tell him that there was a mother who lost a baby, God forbid, he cannot control himself and he starts to cry. In other words, you need both. You need both things very, very prominently. A Molek is purely intellectual, and that's terrible, because that can be used in any direction. The smarter you are, the more likely you are to rationalize being a, a complete atheist. It's just not possible. The simple person, my four-year-old daughter, when you come to the house, if I were to tell her, you know this couch, she comes home from God, let's, let's give it an example, and there's a brand new blue couch in the living room. She says, when did we get this couch? See, it just must have appeared here in the last few minutes because it wasn't here when I left to pick you up. Um, she'd never buy it. For, for five hours, if we try to convince her that it's true, she would never buy it. But, if she was a philosophy student, in other words, it would become easier and easier to prove that to her. Do you understand what I mean? The simple things that you and I sort of knew as a kid. If there's a world, it must have come from somewhere. There must be something that was always there and always going to be there, which made this. I mean, how's good it gotten me? You don't put couches in a room. The simple part of you, when you tell... And if I would give this example to a room full of people that are very difficult and intellectual, they would answer, okay, but that's silly. I mean, that's childish. I mean, come on, you don't. You have to be more sophisticated than that, Rabbi. Um, but the answer is that you don't. In other words, all the sophistication has to be also connected to the very basic human parts of you, to your heart, to your, to your feelings. In fact, whenever the Torah talks about the mind, it talks about a lave. It talks about the heart. Which is a funny image, because the heart is a muscle. It's like actually a muscle. There's nothing there that has anything to do with your your thought process. So why do we call it the heart? It says, the lave knows, the heart knows, and the kidneys advise. The kidneys are advising you what kind of an image is that? It says Rabbi Avigdor Miller, he says that one's heart works as follows. When... I, you know, see somebody insult another person's mother. So I know that's wrong. Just as when someone insults my mother, I know it's wrong. So what's the difference? The difference is when you insult someone else's mother, I may stand up out of duty. Right? When somebody insults my mother, my heart beats faster. It totally changes me. Knowledge that penetrates you to the point that your heart beats differently, that's knowledge. Other than that, it's not valuable. The kidneys advise... The kidneys produce adrenaline. The kidneys are actually affected. They get you to do something. In other words, knowledge cannot just be listed by the things that you can recite back from from elementary school. Amalek is a nation of Malika. They're a nation of people who separate what you do from what you know. So It's funny then that they would attack our bodies. We already have an inkling of why. You really see they don't like the holiness that our bodies are attaining. They don't like that our bodies are changing based on our Torah. But I'll tell you something else about about Amalek. Amalek knows the following Gemara. The Gemara says that there's a verse in 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 the Song of Songs, which (laughs) our sages tell us means that even the emptiest Jew, even the emptiest Jew, is packed with mitzvahs like a pomegranate the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch also in one place, he says that that's talking about, you know, decent Jews, medium Jews, but the Gemara says explicitly in a couple places that it's talking about sinners. They're packed with mitzvahs. In other words, you can get them to do averas like the Greeks tried to do, but who cares? They're still packed with mitzvahs. They're still so deeply connected. They're so deeply connected. The only thing you can do is kill every single one of them. There's no other choice. ideological. He didn't hate us because we had big noses. He didn't hate us the same way that the typical racist just hates anyone who wasn't from his exact lineage. He hated us because there's no other way to get rid of this ideology. They're so infused with it that there's nothing else that can be done. That's who you are you might not like to admit it sometimes, we don't like to admit it, but inside you are packed with mitzvahs, you are totally packed with a yearning and, and, and a screaming voice that says nothing other than I want to do what's right, I want to do what's good, I want to connect to God. Um, and sometimes it may manifest itself in being a major advocate for freeing Palestine. So it's mis-, mis you this know, misapplied, but you can't get it out. You can't get it out. That's really important. That's what we are. There was a great rabbi who once said something more in Biskamor, because you know when I say they're packed with mitzvahs, I mean you and I know some real creeps. I mean, like I've met some of these people. Not everyone it seems appears to be at all connected to their mitzvahs and packed with them. But but here's here's what uh, I, think, I think it was a crook who said this. You know, I, I didn't I didn't see it inside. I heard a quote from one of his students but it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I can't uh, I can't not say who it was. You know, listen what he says. He says. When you eat an apple or an orange or any other fruit, you discard the pits and you eat the flesh. The pomegranate is notable that everything else is is completely meaningless. The the pits are what you eat. So he says the sinners in the Jewish people may make mistakes and they may do bad things, but ultimately they define themselves deep down by their mitzvahs and their good deeds. Deeply they know that that's who they really are. It may be once a year. It may be once every five years. But that's who they really are. That's how you and I are. We ultimately will have to live with ourselves knowing that we are our good deeds. We are the pits, the, the things that plant hundreds and hundreds of other trees. So what happened at Sinai? Mean, Hashem holds a mountain over the head. The mountain represents Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do you force someone? Um, it says in the Maharal, a really cryptic thing, it says that when someone converts with Jewish people, they're like a newborn baby, the Gemara says. They're like a brand new person, son of son, son or daughter of Abraham and Sarah, right? I mean, they're uh, as connected as, as you can ever possibly get to Abraham and Sarah, and that's what conversion is about. Okay. So you so see, Jewish people at Sinai were all considered converts. But there's a difference, listen to this, there's a difference between a conversion that was coerced on a person, when like a mountain was over your head, and every other conversion. And that is, that with every other conversion, you're no longer related to your relatives, you're just the son of Abraham and Sarah. Whereas with the conversion that's forced, you maintain relationship with your relatives. So for example, according to technical Torah law, the rabbis it. a brother and sister could have been married if they converted. Because they're technically not really the rabbis. Listen, that's not what the Torah is about. I didn't want you to do that either, but it's a rabbinic commandment. However, since the Talmud says that even after Sinai, brothers and sisters were disappointed and family members were disappointed that they couldn't be married and they couldn't, you know... So uh, that's what it says. That people were distressed about this. So the Myral proves from there and other places that when you're forced to convert, you maintain your connection to your family even after the conversion. The question: Why on earth should that be? So the Apirion, which is a book on Chumash from, from the author of Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, which is like an abridged version of of of, of, uh, of the code of Jewish law. You know, it tells you how to keep poor and how to keep I mean, very simple. They have it in English. Um, He also wrote a beautiful book on Colomish called Appirium. He says, the only way you can force someone to do something and have that mean anything is if deep down inside they want it with all their heart. There's a law in the Torah that when there's a man who's being recalcitrant and difficult, he doesn't want to give his wife a divorce. You can beat him until he says, I want it. So why does he have to say, I want it? Because if a guy gives a divorce... Hands over a divorce document without saying I want this, and it doesn't work. But if he's in the mikvah and you're holding him in, and he takes it one gasp away, you say, "What's well, so up? Put you back in," unless you say, "I want it," <laughs> you put him back in. And by the tenth time, he says, "I want it." Oh, she's the book, He wanted it. So the Rambam says, "How absurd is that?" What do you mean? You wanted it? You were forced at gunpoint. You wanted that rather than dying, but you didn't want the divorce. So says the Rambam that really every one of us, anyone who identifies themselves as a Jew, who wants to be a Jew, once you know he wants to be a Jew, that means that deep down inside, he wants to do what's right. And if there's something that's stopping you or I from doing what's right, it's not us. It's something from the outside. It's something that took over us. It's a mood we got in. It's a passion we're dealing with. But it's not really us. It's not our heart. It's not who we really are. So all you've got to do, this guy who is refusing to do something, if you force him to do it, he's doing what he wants in his heart. And he's doing it physically. The only thing is he's saying he doesn't want it. All you have to do is change his speech. If there's something you don't want to do that's in the Torah, don't worry, you really do want to do it. Your heart is screaming all day that it wants to do it. It's the only thing that will really make you deeply, deeply happy and fulfilled. But you say, I don't want it, just say the words, I do want it. I do want it. When you say anything, you believe it. When you have little kids, you know, it could be done. They hate to go to God, you know, God is fun, God is fun, and the next day they like it. Uh, you put Enjoy Coke on billboards all over a town, and people suddenly decide that Coca-Cola is better than other drinks. I have done blind taste tests many times with my students, between the store brands and Coca-Cola, Coke and Pepsi, and people cannot tell the difference. Now, a lot of it is in your head which is also real pleasure. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that a lot of the pleasure that we have in food is the presentation and is the, a lot of other things that are not just necessarily physically the actual taste on our palate. That's why. You know, the fact that when we see Coca-Cola we enjoy it more than the next drink, we actually enjoy it more, we get more pleasure. I'm not denying that. But what I am telling you, what I am saying, is that when you advertise something again and again and again, it works. If you say, I want it, I want it, I want it enough, I love this, this is meaningful, this is real, and you, and you believe it, and you make the conscious choice to be happy and to like it, it will work, it absolutely will work. It's, it's not easy to train yourself to do that, but it's the secret to happiness in life. It's really the secret. This is the best thing. From now on, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to get along with this, uh, this one of my in-laws, you know. It, such decisions actually really, really work when they're, when they're conscious. This fellow says, I want it. Even if he's forced to say, I want it, since deep down inside he wants it, it works. So says the Apirion, when the Jewish people stood at Sinai, if you force them to keep the Torah, the only way that works is if you recognize that deep down inside they're connected to Abraham. They're connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were raised and brought to the world by this group of people who taught about truth and taught and, and, and taught the world the raw material necessary for the, for the Ten Commandments to be written on. Um, there's this beautiful medrash that says there was a stone that hung around Abraham's neck. And uh, anyone who would look at it, the Gemara says, anyone who looked at it would be cured from all of their diseases. And when Abraham was done and he died, that was hung up on the sun. And then it says that the Torah, the Ten Commandments, were carved into that rock that hung around Abraham's neck. So the commentaries explain to Rabbeinu and of Abba and one after another say it's not a physical stone that cures the sick. None of us can be convinced that there is such a thing. However, it means there were pearls of wisdom that came from Abraham's mouth and cured any spiritual ailment that existed. Any person who had trouble understanding something, you know, you could go to Avraham and he would sit with you patiently and give you the most delicious food in the world. Um, give you a palace to sleep in, and, and every day you'd come learn from him and you'd be completely cured of your spiritual things. That stone was the raw material with which the Ten Commandments were written on. There wasn't a way that this world could have handled the truth of the Torah without Abraham. And every single one of us who's connected to him has to know that that is the first step. That is how we became connected. It's because we have some Abraham in us. There's no other way. It so says the uh, says that period when the people converted at Sina, they were being forced into it. In order to be forced into it, they had to maintain their relatives. Because if they were to cut themselves off from their ancestors, then the conversion couldn't work. The whole way the conversion is we say, listen, maybe I have to force you, but I know that since you're descendants of Abraham and you have a piece of Abraham inside of you, that it will work. If they would have converted in a way that they would have lost their connection to their ancestors, then the whole conversion wouldn't have worked either because the conversion worked on the basis that they were pieces of Abraham. In our Shemona Esri, every day we say, Thank you, God, blessed are you, God, the shield of Abraham. Magen Abraham. The shield of Abraham, it's very distressing to me. I I was often bothered by this as a kid, and, and I often had this question. The Lord of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, people come to me and ask the question that I'm sure if we haven't expressed it, we've struggled with it. Who were they? I heard some stories about them. Avram, I really get more than the rest of them. Yaakov, is, there's a lot of stories. Yitzchak we know so little about. Why can't I just have him be God? What's this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I have to pray to that. I want to pray to God of me, Bob, Steve. So, the Sassan Emma springs from his grandfather, the Kadusha Harim, one of the Arabian. Yeah. Yitzchak Meir, the first Rebbe of Gare. That's it, Rebbe. Uh, something okay. remarkable. He said, in every single one of us, there is a spark of Abraham. Every one of us has that. That's who we are. Muggen Abraham means you are the God who protects the Abraham inside of each and every one of us. We have Abraham Yitzchak and Yaakov. We have pieces of them inside of us. Sarah, Rivka, Rokh, Leah, even, even Billah and Zilpah. These people are inside of every one of us. All the, the, the forefathers and, the, and, 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 and our, our grandmothers. and That's who we are. They weren't just people that we happen to biologically stem from. They created our souls, our psyches, the way we automatically just identify with the underdog. You turn on the television in some hotel room, and, uh, and there's a basketball game on between two teams with two minutes left. And, you know you automatically root for the one that's down by a few points. You know, you just, like, hope that this team that's struggling, you know, can, can pull it through. And you don't know if they're a bunch of animals or they're decent people. Or if you didn't go to one of the schools, you root for the underdog. That's something that, that, that we taught the world. That's something that is in us uh, more so than Jewish people identify with the underdog. You that we taught that to the world. And monotheism, you know, helps to teach that God will, uh, it's a verse in, in Kohelis these lessons, these parts of us that are so fundamental to our psyche from the kindergarten, we don't realize we weren't necessarily taught them. They're just us. That's who we are. God protects Abraham inside every one of us. When the Jewish people were forced to have sin, there was a problem. They didn't quite believe this. They didn't really believe that inside it's worth keeping the whole Torah. Some of it's going to be hard. They were ready to not accept the Torah. They were ready to change their mind, we learned. On whatever level, on whatever minuscule level, that doesn't mean they were ready to give the whole thing up, but on some level they started to regret it. You can only regret accepting to do something that deep down inside you don't believe you want to do. (coughs) For example, I recommend that when you guys are uh, looking for a spouse, when when you're ready to make your choice on, on who you're going to spend your life with, anything that's a major issue, for you, really important, make sure the person's not compromising. You. <clears throat> so for example, if you want to be the kind of person who has guests at your Shabbat table every single week for all three meals. And the person who raises this, and I don't know that I want that, but like I guess I'm okay with it as long as so here's what happens. What happens is at the last minute before the Shabbos morning meal. Someone knocks at the door and says, do you have any place for me? And your husband's in the shul. You say, sure, come on in, we'll do it. Your husband comes up and you say, listen, can you run in the kitchen and wash three more plates? Because we're out, of, we're out of plates and more people came. So I mean, really, he resents. He does not want to come home right then and go wash the plates. But he'll do you a favor. And every single time that you ask him for another one of those favors, it adds up. And eventually he's going to turn around and say, listen, okay, now you've got to do this huge thing for me. I mean, this is ridiculous. I've had enough of this. Because it adds up. Where ends? If you as a wife are the kind of person who wants to be the person that when someone new is moving into the neighborhood, you meet them at their apartment when they get off the plane and bring them a delicious warm meal. And your husband says to you one day, when you're really busy and you had a hard day, he says, listen, can you cook some extra food tomorrow and bring it to my friends who are moving in next door because I can't make it? Could you do that for me? And you can't stand it. Well, impossible. <laughs> 24 hours after you did it, you feel so good. Because you always wanted to be that person who would do that. And so even though then it was a little bit of inconvenience and it was tough, you feel so good about it afterwards because deep down you know that's what you wanted. So it was hard? Yeah, life is sometimes challenging. Life is sometimes challenging. Sometimes you have to work extra hard one day or get a little less sleep. But if deep down inside that's what you wanted all the way through, then it's just momentary frustration. It doesn't tax the relationship. So look for someone who wanted the major things that are going to come up again and again and again. You're on the same page. Don't, God forbid, bring a kid in the world that the other one doesn't want. Um, Because then every single time he changes the diaper, it was a favor to you who wanted to have just on the major issues. It's really important to find someone who's who's together with you. When we were finding the Torah, on some level we weren't sure of this. The truth is that we have 613 parts to our bodies and 613 parts to our souls. The Zohar talks about this. Because there are 613 mitzvahs. 613 mitzvahs. That's really important. In other words, every single mitzvah is built around us. It's a way of actualizing ourselves. That's what God did. He made the world. He made mitzvahs. It can't be that there's something you wouldn't like. And they sort of got that when they said, of course I want to do the things that are perfect for actualizing myself. But on some level that wasn't complete. What happened in Purim time is as follows. The Jewish people discovered that though you don't see God everywhere, after all, his name isn't mentioned, you really you're He's absolutely there. Every single thing that you do, including eating and drinking, the most physical part of you is packed with mitzvahs. It's packed with opportunity. There's nothing about you that's not whole. There's not one life experience that you've had that isn't something that has built you into a better person. Not one. And Hashem is involved in everything. It's only justified for you to have accepted the Torah under force when you recognize inside that that's who I am. That's what I want. Then it was justified in Hashem forcing us, so to speak. And the Jewish people stood at Simon Hashem said, if you don't accept the Torah now, Sham tehek furascha. What's over there? It's out in the world. It's out there in the times of Purim and Mordecai Esther time. When you are challenged on this, you won't have anything if it's not forced on you. But if it's forced on you, if you accept all of it, knowing that it has to be this way, that's who I am. So then, even in the hardest of times, it won't leave you. You drink on Purim. You drink on Purim to the point that your mind is gone. See, I'm only trying to separate the mind from the mind. You drink on Purim until there is no mind. So you can't see good and evil. You don't, you're just you. And, and you know, you'll find if you're in the right place and you don't go to the wrong place, if you're around other people that are like-minded, you'll find that it brings out in you a lot of goodness. You'll see the people that you're watching if you yourself choose not to just get completely roaring drunk. So, you know, you'll watch the, the other people. They're singing songs to Hashem and they're dancing and they're smiling and they're not uh, bringing out every evil thing. You see, us, when we let our mind go on vacation for a little bit, then we discover how physically our bodies, just our very essence, it's all holy. There's a holiness to it. In the places where you can't see God in your life and in the world, He's there. He's there completely. You eat and you drink. Don't bother. You know, it's a minute to sing Shoshana Siakob and sing Jewish songs. It's very nice. You can say Dei Torah when you're drunk. It's very nice. But that's not the mitzvah. That's another thing because we can't really stand to be somewhere without well, that's seeing songs to and saying divrei Torah. A wedding is about people getting married. There can also be divrei Torah. Right? There should be Why not? I mean, since when did Jewish people get together without divrei Torah? But it's not a sheer. It is a wedding. And so, too, Purim. Purim is not a time for people to be discussing all sorts of deep things. It's a time to be holy. To really enjoy the food. To really enjoy the drinks. To let your mind go on vacation and realize you don't need your mind only. There's a whole other part of you that's also really, really holy and really meaningful. And that's your body. That's your physical sight. That's every physical experience you've had that seems to have no meaning for you. You can't figure out why it had to happen. Later, you understand it was all poor. So the poor experience of your body reaching such a point, he wants to kill your body. And they start to realize, wait a minute, no matter what happens, we're connected to God. So he, he disappears, that guy. How many winds up hanging on the tree that he made to hang us on? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing for him to get. You can't destroy the indestructible. Uh, you can keep throwing things against it, but it's a boomerang. It's just going to bounce back and hit you in the face eventually because you can't break you know, the, the holiness that is inherent to the Jewish people. And, and in reality, to say the Jewish people is, 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 is a mistake because despite the fact that we are the ambassadors of this in the world, the Torah is explicit. It's not so much our job or our mandate, but it is the end game. If we do our job, we fulfill what Hashem gave us to do. So what's going to happen is everything in the world is going to sort of wake up to this. I mean, you read like when you're welcoming the Shabbos, you read about the rivers of the field dancing and the animals are so excited and everything was created by God to be part of one big picture. Every human being in the world, ultimately, has good in him that can be found. In fact, the Arizal says, do you know why we drink on Purim? To bless Haman? He says, because everyone has some goodness. There's some divine spark somewhere. We have to find the divine spark in Haman before discarding the rest of him. So we get so drunk that we bless Haman too. Not because we could ever with a straight head know what we're talking about. But when we say it when we're drunk, we're recognizing, I don't know everything. And I don't understand how this works. But I know this guy was holy. I know there was something in there. There was something in there that was divine. You give life to all of them. Atama et kulam. We sing our prayers. You give life to everything. Which means if anything is alive, it's got something divine in there giving it life. And haman too. And so we have to curse him the rest of the year. On Purim, we also have to bless him. We have to say, blessed is haman. That's not reason We all have that inside of us every human being in the world. Tell your story. Um, it illustrates this beautifully. You know, I, mean, I taught something this week in another context, um, but also very related to this idea. And the story is an incredible story about, about Rabbi Shlomo he was He was in the 60s. He opened this wacky place in San Francisco called the House of Love and Prayer. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting, it was was like a sweet smelling and and it was like a group of, like, (laughs) hippies from all over the place, who had come together, of all religions, races, you know, creeds, every kind of person in the world was there, and the one thing they had in common is that they were prepared to live in a house called the House of Love and They were going to love each other, they were going to pray a little bit, that's what it was. And it was run by a couple of rabbis, but Shlomo Kablach was, was, was running. Okay, so, you know, there was a girl there, and her name was Chrissy, Chrissy was uh, was not her Yiddish name. It was, you know, it was uh, it was her her Christian name. She was uh, not a Jewish girl. She was from, you know, like Kansas or something, or uh, middle America. And uh, she was very sad. He describes, you know, a very small nose and and sad eyes. That was the story of Christy. You know, one day it becomes clear to uh, to the people there that that she's really sad. And someone sits her down and says, listen to me, you got to talk to us. We're your friends. You trust us. You hear a little line. And she reveals to them that her father is a grand dragon or some absurd name that they have in the Krukoz line. Um, you can understand why someone who's raised in the home of a whole being would be a little bit sad in any event she ran away from home and that's where she's there and like you know she used to say like if my father ever finds out that I sought refuge with some rabbis <laughs> I don't know what he would do. Okay, um, We're gonna find out. The light went on and a couple weeks later they notice that Chrissy gets off the phone she hangs up the phone I guess in the common room and she is white as a sheet that pub was literally intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, she's lost all color from her face. She's totally, you know, doesn't know what's going on and she says, listen, uh, you know, my father, you know, is on the way here. My mother told me he had hired a private investigator. He found out where I am and he is on his way here. He got in his truck and, and came, you know, and is on the way to find me. Now, the part about he got in his truck, I just, you know, I invented that but I'm assuming that he didn't drive a, Anything else.
1: Grandmasters in the
0: clan drive pickup trucks. So he was anyway, he was on the way down there, um, I'm sure armed um, with a number of, of weapons. And, I mean, generally, also, these people are about six foot five with like orange hair and they could bite directly through your jugular vein, um, and then chew on whatever they just got. Um, and that's what everyone in the house was worried about as they quickly made hiding places. And, and when there was a knock on the door about a day later, the book that I read describes people scattering. Literally, people running. A couple people trying to, you know, go like uh, Miami Vice style out the clothesline. There were people hiding in the shower. Um, wacky stuff was happening over there. Left in the common room, right in front of the door, was Shlomo Kavach and Chrissy, um, and like you know, little eyes peeking out from the closets. So they go to the door. my Kavach says, "Wait here." He opens up the door and he says, "Are you Chrissy's father?" And like uh, you know, he sees the payas and sits is hanging out guitar slung over his shoulder. And he, run, he he gives him a big hug. And he says, I want you to know something. I've been waiting to meet you for a long time. So he says, really? I mean, what, why? What?" was just totally, totally floored by this. So he says, you know, because your daughter, the way she talks about you, she loves you so much. So he says, you know, that's a crock of, uh, of baloney. She doesn't love me. She ran away from home. She ran away. Why does she love me so much? So he said, my sweetest friend. He said, you might think that she doesn't love you. Because she doesn't always know how to express it. But her love for you runs so deep, she loves you so much. And the guy was like, had no breath left in his uh, No problem. She sat down on the couch, he spoke with his daughter for a couple of hours. When he left. He came over to Rebekahba and he says, "You know, Rabbi, listen, I don't want any of these rabbis talking to my daughter. Except for you, you know, you're okay. But the rest of them, and, and with that he left. And she stayed there another year or so and then nobody ever saw her ever again. At the time that they wrote the book, nobody was able to find her and find out how her life had gone from then on. Um, the story is a very powerful one. What it tells you is that deep down in you know, people are human. People had a lot of goodness in them. The job of the Jewish people is to excel in living that sort of a life. Excel at telling yourself, yes, I do want to do what's right. Just like when a little child, I mean, if you've ever been around kindergartners, the kid will pick up his hand and be about to smack another kid. And you say, you know, I'm so proud of you, Joey, how you're not hitting your brother, how you're controlling yourself. <laughs> and 99 out of 100 times the kid will put his arm down. In other words, if he can do it. Almost always it will work. Sometimes you got the kid when he was in such a rage that it really wasn't in his control at that moment. But for the most part, when you tell someone they can do it, you're right. For the most part, you're right. And for sure with yourself. If there's anything in the Torah, if there's anything in your life, you, I just can't do it. Oh, my mother drives me so crazy. I can't do it. You know what? I mean, she wouldn't have been your mother if you can't. You can. You just have to remind yourself that you can. You just have to know that our job in the world is to show that we can do what's right. We can build a peaceful, loving, kind world. We can have meaning. We can. And we will. And we're going to live that. And if you didn't have 613 mitzvahs, and if it didn't take over every bit of your life, if there wasn't a special way to wash your hands when you wake up in the morning, or which shoe to put on before the other shoe, if it wasn't so down to how you live your life, it's perfect for you. I mean, we only take things on when we're ready. You know, I'm not trying to push anyone to another step that they're not prepared for, but just know that the things that you're ready for and the things that you're supposed to be doing, every single one of them is what you want to do. Without your mind, without any intellectual complications, your body just wants that. When you get drunk on um, poor or you just experience the feeling of joy on um, poor. allow yourself to feel some physical pleasure on um, poor. And don't Think too much for a couple of minutes. Let your mind go. Before Adam and Eve sinned, everything was simple. You wanted what was right. You didn't want what was wrong. But then they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They knew good and evil. I'm poor and we drink till we don't know the good from the evil. We don't know the good back from the bad guy. We don't know it anymore. We want to go back to simplicity. We just want to be holy in our bodies too. We want it to penetrate to everything. And therefore, I want to bless all of us, and I want to tell you that um, if there's any group of people that you could possibly discuss this with who you would also be humbled by the fact that they live this experience, it's you guys. I mean, there's no question that uh, people coming from all different places in the world and all different challenges that are far greater than someone like me who was raised in you know, a home where we kept Shabbos and kosher. And, you know, the truth is, I, I will never know the kind of, you know, obstacles that, that, that many of you have overcome um, just to do the things that I was simply raised to do at, at three or four years old. Um, but will you show, more so than anything else, and you show someone like me and the rest of us in the total world, that, that we're not missing anything, that, uh, that we have it all, that this is what we really want, that a person who is out there in the world with their head on straight would say, you know what, the Torah has so much to offer. The, the, Jew, the Jewish religion and the way that it's practiced and the, and the sense of family and community and everything that we stand for is what life is about, It's what makes the world a better place, It's what will spread the message to the world that you know what, guys, you're really good kids. You're really good people. Stop fighting. Don't hit your brother. You know, let's all get along. Let's all have a meaningful life. Um, So Ankur, you know, when you see that drunken kid and you think, what a shirt, you know, where you know just to realize that the whole message of this day is like, even when he's drunk, you still love him. Even when he's doing something silly and running around and getting in front of your bus and now the bus can't go and you're sitting there trying to get to the porter party, you know, you still love that guy so much because you didn't love his intellect, you didn't love his decision making, you just love the person who's down under that because that person is is holy too. Thank you so much for your attention. It was really an honor to, to be here. Thank you.